0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Early Modern History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Adam Jazenski, Assistant Professor of Art History at Southern Methodist University, to talk about his new book, Praying to Portraits, Audience Identity in the Inquisition in, early, in the Early Modern Hispanic World, out this year, 2023, with Penn State University Press. Hello, Adam, and welcome to the podcast.
2: Hi, thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here.
1: Uh, Great. How are you today?
2: I'm doing well, uh, surviving the heat, um, but all things considered. um, Glad to be home after an intense year of sabbatical travel and research for my new project.
1: Wow. Yeah, good, but uh, it's a good problem to have, but still, you know, all right. Um, So first thing I want to say, this is a gorgeous book. And listeners, this is a book you want to have in your hands. Like, this isn't going to work on your phone. Um, These are beautiful images. You'll want to touch it. And also, Penn State is a nice book, right? It feels good in your hands. So let's talk about this beautiful product. Um, Did this come out of your dissertation?
2: Yes, yeah. So this book was... um from conception as the dissertation to receiving the final product 10 years. And so I started writing the dissertation in 2000, uh, end of 2012, early 13, uh, defended the dissertation three and a half years later, got the job in Dallas, and um, essentially had to learn how to teach and then wrap my mind around revising a dissertation to turn it into a book. So uh, it was a full decade of gestation, uh, but here it is.
1: Here it is. Yeah, projects don't come out much faster than that. Book projects take a long time, and they're better for it. You don't. You know, no one needs a book every year. Um, Right. So, how did you decide to come? How did you come to this particular study?
2: Um, It's a good question. Um, You know, I'd always. I, I was trained as a Latin Americanist um uh in the phd program but my advisor at the time tom cummins was very interested in uh, spain's relationship to latin america so it was very clear to me that i was going to have one foot on either side of the atlantic uh, but the the dissertation and then book arose out of really seeing one image uh, i was uh, flipping through an exhibition catalog um on Velasquez, Giordano, Bernini, and the courts of Europe, which took place in the Scuderia del Quirinale in Rome, a number of years ago, and uh, there was a small quarter-size, quarter, um, uh, quarter-page-size uh, quarter image of a portrait of the King of Spain with a halo, and I was surprised. Um, actually, this is now something I always refer to my own students, saying looking at images and allowing yourself to be surprised is a really great way to start a project because you say, oh, I'm surprised. And then you ask yourself, why am I surprised? What about my training has not prepared me to uh, to understand this object or this image or this text or or what, what, what have you? And so I said, okay, well, this is odd. Uh, why is the king represented as a saint? And that led me down the rabbit hole of all of the weird ways in which portraiture, which we tend to think is a secular genre of portraits of kings, uh, dynastic portrait galleries, uh, essentially anyone with a bit of cash sitting in front of a painter and saying, give me an image, And on the other hand, religious imagery, right? Images that serve for prayer, for contemplation, for devotion that have to do with salvation in the Catholic world. All of a sudden, I started finding all of these weird ways in which the two intersected and overlapped. And this really large gray area between what I'd always thought were completely monolithic categories of art.
1: And sacred and secular, and like I'm, I was thinking about like where you run into them as well. I'm I'm at home. I'm going to see a portrait. I'm in a church. I will see a sacred image.
2: Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Great question. Um, there are there are very much spaces in which these images function. Um, you know, if you think about it, um, where are you likely to find portraits in a church? Well, donors people who paid for an altarpiece or are buried in a chapel, well, great way to ensure that um, the priests who have committed to saying masses for your memory and in um, support of your salvation, don't forget, is to make sure there's a portrait included in whatever uh, artwork you paid for. Um, You might find portraits of actual saints right so consider figures like ignatius of loyola teresa of avila what we call the modern saints right so people who are canonized by the church in the 16th or 17th century these are people whose uh representations are portraits because there was already at the time of their death a well-established system of making images that really looked like the person. There were people who really remembered what Ignatius had looked like or what Teresa had looked like. They knew that she had three warts around her lips and that you needed to represent her as such. And they knew that Ignatius had a big aquiline nose and a receding hairline, and that was important to represent him as such, right? So that's another way you might find a portrait. Um, At home though, you're also going to have sacred images, right? So if you have the means, you're going to have a chapel in your palace. Uh, you are going to have objects for what we call domestic devotion, right? So people would pray to little printed images that they kept uh, by their bed. They would have books of hours, right? They would have um, full-on religious paintings uh, displayed in different parts of the house. Um And we know that people would use those kinds of images for prayer. Um, One of the interesting case studies in the book deals with the queen of Spain in the early 17th century, Margarita of Austria. Uh, She is uh, commissions some of the most famous sanctified portraits. That is to say, the type of image that started the whole process, which was the portrait of the king as a saint, she has herself represented as the Virgin Mary. Um, this painting survives. Um, it's in the uh, it's in uh, in Austria currently, and um, the question that led me to write a whole chapter about it was, how, in the H E double hockey sticks, does she get away with this? Right. I mean, being queen certainly helps. Got a special status. But even still, um, the question that drove me was, but what is she really intending to do here with this image? And there's been some interpretations that uh, this has to do with the idea of sacred monarchy, right? That the king is endowed with some form of divine power. But that really works in places like France or England, where we know that this really was a concept that drove monarchy, Whereas in Spain, scholars are a lot more skeptical that people really believed in this idea that the king was sort of hand-selected by God. So I said to myself, well, let's let's put aside that question that this portrait is really about sacred monarchy and really think about what the queen is doing with this kind of image, right? I mean, she probably has it in her private chapel, and so she's looking at it probably every day. She's looking at a portrait of herself that is also a painting of the Virgin Mary, the most holy of women. And so how do you square that, right? And so the argument I tried to develop is about the forms of prayer that she may have practiced in front of this image. And the portrait, which we tend to think of as a a celebration of the individual, right? Here I am. I'm gorgeous and beautiful and, um, and you know, mem- um, memorialized for posterity in this image. Well, actually I think that in the guise of the Virgin, it's sort of different. I think it's about stressing your own worthlessness in comparison with this inimitable holy model, right? So it's about the constant tension between how, uh, how on a different plane the Virgin is and how unworthy the queen is of that comparison. Right. And there's, there is evidence, textual evidence and um, letters and and documents that sort of allow us to, to build that kind of interpretation.
1: Okay. So um, there's a, you have, there are different kinds of these portraits, right? And in some, there's the queen as the Virgin Mary, which really is bold. Um, Well done. Uh, But then there are images of people of side by, like of the sitter side by side with uh, a holy person or a saint or something. Yeah. And then just, are there images just of the saints as well?
2: Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. So there are many of those. It's a category that, Tends to be known as the true portrait of a saint. Right. So that in itself as a as a term is very interesting. You'll see it in Latin as vera effigie uh, or efigie. Uh, you'll see it in Spanish as verdadero retrato. There's this stress, and it's often written on the painting, right? This is a true portrait. I find that stress on truthfulness and on the authority of the image so interesting. Because um, it's almost as if doth protest too much. Um, Why are we stressing the truthfulness of this image, unless there's some anxiety about images, maybe not being able to be completely infallible or truthful? And so one of the interesting things in the, the the book, I think, is this sort of constant battle to make sure that our sacred images, uh, our, and the, the sort of point of view of a seventeenth century Catholic, uh, are infallible, are authoritative, are legitimate. Um, and one of the ways they do that is through textual inscriptions that sort of identify and make in incontrovertible, the subject of the image and its truthfulness. And in general, the whole turn towards portraiture and religious images also has something to do with that because portraiture, regardless of all of the questions around it in the the period, and it's considered vain, it's considered um, that people can use it to brush up their appearance, right? They apply a filter, but nevertheless, it has this sort of idea of almost being an eyewitness, to a, a person's life, sort of a window into their life. And it gives this cachet of truthfulness, of authenticity. And I think that's why also it becomes so powerful in religious imagery, especially in a period of uh, the reforms, uh, religious reform, attacks on Catholicism. Um, there's this sort of doubling down in the Catholic church and among Catholic image makers that yes, images are actually worth continuing to use. They are legitimate and we're going to keep doing it.
1: Yeah. Which is, I mean, just to be clear, something that say Protestants are not necessarily on board with, right? This is a, this can this is in fact a point of contention.
2: Exactly. Yes. Right.
1: Um, and I was thinking as well about how these portraits and kind of like any sort of the veneration of image in general tends to blur the lines between the physical and the spiritual anyway, oh. right? Uh-huh. So there, this becomes a locus for uh, the intercession, right? Or some, mm. something that really can break that barrier,
2: Exactly. Yeah, it's very interesting because, um, well, that's actually another thing that the Protestants are really criticizing is all of these sort of physical manifestations of faith from paintings and statues to relics, right? So body fragments or things that belong to a holy figure. And and in response to those critiques, the, the Catholic Church really doubles down on all of those practices. Um, but yes, it's... Um, it, you know, in terms of the sort of materiality of these images in spiritual practice, it's so interesting. We know how much people really sort of use them in a physical way. They touch them, they kiss them, uh, they eat fragments of the images, right? Anything to sort of get closer to that image, uh, and to the, by extension to the figure that it represents, right? Because that's ultimately what it's about.
1: Um, you yeah. So you want to just uh, go to your text. Your second chapter opens with an unexpected, unexpected and utterly delightful question, which is, is one egg a portrait of another egg? Um, and then you say, after all, eggs do look more or less alike, uh, which I, I has got to be the first and last time I've ever seen that. Um, it, we'll ever see that in an academic book. but uh, what, what is this meant to introduce?
2: That's That was one of my favorite uh, uh, sort of hooks for a chapter. So the book relies a lot on what we might call uh, image theory or art theory. What's interesting to me about the 16th and 17th centuries is that people really start writing a lot about what art is, what it can do, how it can affect the viewer, what it should look like in the case of religious imagery. And so this is actually not my own invention, but it comes from um, a a discourse on the true image, which is written in Spain in the 1630s by a cleric from Andalusia. And that's one of the sort of heuristic methods he uses to think about, well, what, what are images? What is a portrait, right? And he says... Um, Okay, you have two eggs. Is one egg a portrait of the other egg? He says, well, they look alike. And that is certainly, from my point of view, one of the conditions of portraiture. uh, But they're not intended as portraits of one another, right? So a portrait also has to have this sort of function of intentionality. Um, it can't, it's not just about resemblance, right? It, it's not, that's not enough. And so, um, the book overall turns to a lot of these kinds of early printed sources. In some ways, I joke that I, um, I'm a sort of fake art historian because what I really love is reading texts about images and, uh, there's such a richness of sources and actually, you know, uh, resources like Internet Archive or Google Books have been so helpful in this project because you can do sort of deep dives uh, for, you know, targeted keyword searches of, you know, retrato, portrait, uh, in any book published between 1550 and 1750. And oftentimes I would just sort of entertain myself looking for how had uh, clerics, philosophers, uh, all sorts of people who were publishing, thinking about portraits, right? And um, and about the different sort of ways in which they were understood and they produced meaning. Um, so that was an amazing sort of tool for me in writing this. So the book is also quite, uh, quite big on textual analysis. I analyze plays analyze inquisition documents a lot. Um there is there's a lot of textual analysis as well.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's um you it would you're an interesting art historian. Um so the idea here like what is the intent? Like I'm still unclear what is the intent of a portrait or in particularly a sacred portrait.
2: Interesting question. Um and a difficult question that I think is in some ways unresolvable because um there this was something that very much emerged while i was writing the book as a the problem the field of research here is three continents uh is um you know uh both both hemispheres well all four hemispheres i mean really um Studying the early modern Hispanic world or the early modern Spanish crown forces you to confront different geographies, um, different languages that uh, people are speaking in different parts of this colonial empire, uh, even though Spanish is the lingua franca and in practice, even different faith systems, right? Ostensibly, uh, Catholicism is the one faith in all parts of the Spanish crown, but in practice, we know that that's not always true. And so that diversity of peoples and viewpoints who form part of the Spanish crown also forces us to reconsider what even is a portrait and what are its functions. And that's something that I try to do in chapter three, when I uh, look at some uh, uh, meta texts, that is to say dictionaries and lexicons of um, uh, in the Nahuatl language um, used in central Mexico, where uh, the term portrait is identified with a a number of quite complex, cosmologically complex, philosophically complex terms in Nahuatl, um, the the local indigenous language. And um, we see the diversity of meanings that portraiture has. It is, of course, on the one hand, what we consider to be a portrait. That is to say a more or less accurate, and I put accurate in scare quotes, representation of a specific person at a specific point in time. Um, But a portrait is sometimes completely generic. It looks nothing like any real person we've ever seen in the world, and yet people treat it as if it Fully does, right? So portraits can be just as much a matter of convention. Um, These, yeah, so the the sort of range of meanings of portraiture is really broad. You know, uh, people use the term portrait to describe um, miraculous images. They use it to describe monsters that are... uh, Ident- uh, you know, that you get these wonderful sort of broadsheets, or, um, you know, essentially the equivalent of newspapers about the discovery of a monster in the fields outside of Krakow, which happens to be my hometown. And there's a Spanish broadsheet about it. And sure enough, the monster is represented in a very simple, mm, bare bones woodcut. But sure enough, the text identifies it as a portrait of that monster, right? So the term. You can even have portraits of cities, right? So the term is very, very broad in this period, much broader than we would ever use it. And that also is part of the challenge, sort of how do we use that type of term in a way that is both historically sound and yet that doesn't completely overwhelm us as modern readers.
1: So then, perhaps it really is about what it's meant to do. Like what we're meant. Maybe the the best way to talk about this is what what we're what a portrait's meant to do. And in some cases, you know, Ignatius Loyola, this is what he looked like. We started painting it right, as soon as he died, right? As soon as right, and and or. But then there's also we don't have any idea what Santa Lucia looked like, but but here's how you know it's her.
2: Yes. Well, the question of how do you legitimize whether a portrait is accurate or not, right? Which is one of my favorite uh, uh, case studies in the book, um, which centers on the portrait of Saint Benedict. Uh, Benedict was a medieval saint. Uh, There were, um, as far as we know, no accurate representations of him. However, he was a very important saint in the early modern period. There were many depictions of him, many altarpieces and paintings. Um, and there's an amazing Inquisition case that takes place in Madrid in the 1630s, where a number of nuns um, are believed to be possessed by demons. The demons do quite interesting things. They speak through the nuns. And the the, the trial is fascinating because they, uh, they write down the declarations of the demons. So really, you're Ideas that you're reading the voice and the declarations of what the demons have said. And one of the things the demons are really interested in, unclear why, is the accuracy of different kinds of religious images, including of St. Benedict. And so what they say is, hey, you have a painting of St. Benedict here in your convent. It's not a portrait. It's not accurate because we as demons have access to supernatural knowledge and we know that this is not actually what St. Benedict looked like, right? And it's very interesting because various people associated with the convent are quite eager to accept this at face value. Why? Well, because supernatural knowledge, even if it comes from a suspect source like a demon, is too good to pass pass up if it's a source that can help you authorize and legitimize your holy image. Um, and this is just one of the number many inquisition cases that I look at in the book. Um, unfortunately, very rarely do these have associated images. In the case of the uh, demonically possessed nuns, we know that there are many, many, many images that are brought into the Inquisitorial Tribunal in Madrid for the inquisitors to consider and inspect. Unfortunately, only one of these survives in the uh, trial process. Uh, Itself. And as I write in the book, I suspect it's probably just a sort of doodle by an inquisitorial notary um, because it is clearly not by a professional artist. It's a wonderful sort of testimony um, of the probably one of the objects that was physically brought into the inquisitorial chambers. But uh, none of the actual objects that the demons inspected or even commissioned themselves, which we know they did, uh, survives. And that's one of the frustrations of, of dealing with inquisitorial materials as an art historian.
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: Yeah, that case is so fun. Um, just bonkers! I can't believe there hasn't been a movie about this. Um, I mean, and there's so many wonderful things to talk about with why these nuns, like these nuns, are possessed and what that means and what's really going on. But the idea that they that that you should have this accurate image of someone who's been dead for a very long time, like a millennium. Um, Why is that? I don't know why that's important to demons, certainly, but I'm not sure like why of the the import in that anyway, when won't anything do,
2: right? On the one hand, I think, yes, in practice, anything will do because it comes down to the function of sacred images, which is they're meant to assist you in um, some sort of spiritual contemplation of the Holy figure. The image in itself should not be the goal, right? The images should help to direct the faithful's spiritual attention to the actual saint who is in heaven, right? So this is one of the sort of main Protestant critiques of Catholic uses of images is that people treat images as if they are the end goal, as if they are sacred in and of themselves. Catholics in response say, no, 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 that's not the case. These are a tool for us. Although in practice, as we know, uh, the that line gets very blurry when you have what we might consider a miraculous image, right? an image that uh, performs miracles, that heals, that that weeps sometimes we have these images that weep or bleed or sweat right and so what do you do with there but that's a whole other that's a whole other question right the miraculous image so really it comes down to the function of the image which is you know it should really help direct your attention and so why does it matter that it be true or accurate this is something unresolved um certain of the theoreticians that uh, I analyze in the book say very explicitly that yes, if we don't have an accurate representation of a saint, well, so be it. We're still we're still going to make images of this person. It doesn't matter. However, if we can by any means get a portrait of this person to make sure that our images are accurate, that is better. Now, I suspect it's because portraits somehow affect us differently than an image that is generic there's something about the experience of being in front of a depiction of a real person that seems real that i think uh, does something a little different Uh, on the one hand there's this sense of this was a real person this saint. And they achieved sanctity. They are a model for me as a good Catholic of how to behave. There's always this idea that maybe if I too am so virtuous, you know, of course, this would be considered probably quite vainglorious, but could I also reach that level of of sanctity? It's an open question, um, but there is definitely the sense of using a saint as a model, And I think if there's this stress of, yes, the saint was a real person, um, that heightens that kind of spiritual experience. So I think portraits, because of those little idiosyncrasies of individual experience, right? The slightly off center nose, the receding hairline, the wart, right? All of these elements that you see. In portraits that add individuality to what we look like, those things also enhance in positive ways the spiritual experience of looking at a holy image that has those qualities. And I think it's why uh, portraits of saints become such an important category in this period, because they seem more real. There's more, there's a sort of closer association between the faithful and those kinds of images. Yeah,
1: so that's it. Yeah, there's this close, a very, a much more personal connection you get, which you could get from a relic, I suppose, but less so than an icon that's just like generic holy guy.
2: And yet we know people, you know, absolutely use, you know, people um, use for their spiritual pr- spiritual practices, images that are explicitly considered ugly, uh, or bad, bad, quote, unquote, uh, as in, artistically bad, and yet devotionally very powerful, right? So it's not 100% a, a sort of firm connection between an artwork being, quote, unquote, good artistically, that is to say, in the case of a portrait, being really accurate, and looking just like the person, and say how effective or efficacious that image is for spiritual practice. And this is really one of the big debates in early modern art history, which is the where is the line between artistic quality and spiritual efficacy, right? And this this is something that's been debated a lot. Does a artistically excellent image make for a better devotional experience? I think I think we would argue probably no. Although it's very much an open question in the period itself, with some theorists saying, "Oh, you know these these artists who just focus only on their own fame and uh, on their own artistic excellence." When we know that it really doesn't matter for the faithful, and others who say, "No, no, the a good devotional image has to be the most beautiful, the most uh, powerful, the most." Um, artistically excellent possible.
1: Mm. Um, I want to do a quick pivot as I want to talk specifically about colonial Mexico. Um, And you write that a Nahuatl understanding of the sacred portraiture changes the way kind of, you know, uh, yeah, changes the way Europeans see portraiture or perhaps like there's at least maybe some dialectic there. can we talk about this? What do you? Can you tell me more about this? Tell, actually, teach me what I what I was meant to have understood from the
2: book. Um, what I so you're mentioning uh, chapter three, where again I'm looking at these um, Nawat definitions of um, of portraiture and how it's used. I look at um, these. Portraits, trying to expand our definition of the early modern portrait as a category, again, trying to move away from simply seeing these images from a Spanish or European perspective when we know that there was such a diversity of uh, audiences. Um, So one of the case studies deals with the city of Puebla de Los Angeles in central Mexico, a uh, city where um, some of the uh, figures who appear in the inquisitorial trial around a number of portraits uh, are speaking in Nahuatl. And so even though Puebla is a wealthy um, um, Spanish, uh, sort of very self-consciously Spanish city, um, in its immediate and environs, you have people who live in even monolingual Nahuatl-speaking communities. And so the question was, how does the term portrait signify in those places? And I think it, it has a different meaning. It helps us sort of expand the definition of portraiture writ large. Um, portraiture becomes a sort of vehicle for the sacred, The representation of a specific figure uh, can go beyond that individual, and it can become a vehicle for the representation of a deity, as I study in that in that section. Uh, and we see that in particular through um, what is uh, known by scholars of Aztec religion or of, in Nahuatl studies as a deity impersonation. Um, I, I won't go into here into the sort of etymology of the Nahuatl terms, which is quite complex, and also one of these amazing cases where uh, you know, the sort of generosity of scholarship where my interpretation really depends on the excellence and kindness of scholars like Alison Kaplan or Emily Floyd, who helped me work through the implications of this uh, complicated Nahuatl lexicon.
1: So I wanted to just, um, I wanted to ask kind of a quick follow up about the Nahuatl understandings, and I want to talk about how doing this kind of work has an implication when we talk about decolonizing the field, which is a funny turn of phrase when we're talking about particularly a col- the colonial era. But right, can you talk to me? Would you can you talk about like what, your choice to to include this reading in the book, perhaps?
2: It it stems from my. Uh... A- acknowledgement of the complexities of this colonial world and of the fact that spanish is far from being the only language spoken and also i think of the 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 power of words and the meanings that are embedded in words and um attempting not being a nahuatl scholar myself to um sort of expand definitions of words as when they are placed into conversation with words in other languages that are used to translate them. Right. And, um, so it really stems from the sense that you cannot tell the full history. I shouldn't say it's impossible to tell any history fully. Right. But sort of acknowledging that, um, the context I'm dealing with is so complex and, uh, that it's absolutely necessary to uh, try to move against just hegemonic or dominant um, perspectives, both linguistic and cosmological, and that's to say world belief, and religious and spiritual, by attending to how uh, non-Spanish speakers who are very much part of colonial society in central Mexico— uh, you know, crucial sort of participants in colonial society, people who uh, thrived as as artists, as um, as uh, local politicians, as uh, artisans, uh, also would have participated in that colonial economy and have used those kinds of terms. Um, and it helps us, I think, expand uh, those meanings of terms like the portrait in early modernity, uh, and I think it's also really important to acknowledge that this is a colonial context, right? Um, when we study someone like Diego Velazquez, well, what allows a painter like that to uh, operate in the context that he does? Well, it's very much, I think, the extractive colonial system that supports and had it has at that point supported the Spanish monarchy for over a century, so I think that those histories are really important to include in what might otherwise just feel like a much more, um, uh, um, I don't want to say traditional, but but sort of standard account of the European portrait.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I mean it's essential, really, right to. To get at the idea that there's a conversation and opinions, worlds are being changed, it's not. I think we, I think we have a tendency to look at colonial history as this idea of a European power coming in and stamping out any indigenous voices, which is not. It, it, like we can talk about agency or something, but it's not necessarily appropriate. There is a conversation that's ha- happening.
2: Yeah. Right. And and you know the the case that I look at in central Mexico is from 1650. It's you know a full 130 years after the the conquest of central Mexico. We're looking at a very different society than early 16th century Mexico. It's a fully a colonial society um that that has its own particularities. Right, I mean, 130 years—it's like looking at 1890, right? Um, it's a uh, it's hard to overstate the the difference in uh in that kind of context than say the 1520s, right? So the, the sort of early conquest of of Mexico,
1: and while still dealing with like you said, monolingual villages or like, you know, towns.
2: Right, right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, we know from the work of scholars like Molly Bourne or, well, e- you know, endless figures who have done excellent work on the colonial context of 17th century Mexico, uh, Justina Olco. Um, uh, uh, I'm blanking on names right now uh, uh, and, and excellent other sch- scholars. Sorry um <clears throat> that um there is very much a, a continued uh usage of not only Nahuatl linguistically but also of um spiritual practices that very much um coexist along um fully orthodox catholic practices right so it's not just that these are uh, um that these are uh, sort of uh, crypto practices but um, but orthodoxy and heterodoxy can c- coexist very comfortably alongside one another
1: right cool um yeah so let's go back to this royal portraiture devotional royal portraiture I'd like to talk about that before we go
2: you know the the last chapter looks at the royal portrait in Spain and um, and it that may, it may seem paradoxical that in a book on the sacred portrait, there's one chapter just about the portrait of the king. After all, when you look at Velázquez's portraits of Philip IV, they would seem to be the most secular type of image being produced in Europe imaginable. They are a, a very similar representation of a specific individual, Philip IV, king of Spain, Wearing all black, standing in a nondescript background, occasionally as a little table with a velvet tablecloth. Really, they they seem to be prototypical, secular, political portraits. And yet, they are the focus of Chapter 4 because the Spanish portrait is very, very unusual in 17th century Europe. If you look at portraits from any other context where you have a monarchy, the king or queen will appear with some sort of elements of royal power, most notably the crown. Crowns, scepters, coronation robes, um, imperial crowns, really any number of standardized symbols of royal power. Think of English royal portraiture, think of French royal portraiture, think of Polish or um, uh, uh, Central European royal portraiture, you are going to have standard symbols of power. In Spain, there are none. This stems from the fact that there is no formal coronation ceremony in early modern Spain. The king is not crowned. He is simply proclaimed. There's no royal anointing. There are no symbols of royal power. And so the portraits do not have those standardized elements. The question that then drove me always was, well, how do you recognize a portrait of the king uh, if there is no symbol of royal power? And it stems from forms of display, which are all outside of the image itself that is to say we know that the portrait of the king was always displayed under a specific type of baldakin or canopy that is to say a piece of cloth that was uh, what you might call it a cloth of honor that was installed in uh, the place where the portrait would be viewed it would have a guard Adjacent to the portrait, it would have, it would be built, uh, there would be a dais built up on top of which the portrait would be displayed. So these elements of display were crucial for the portrait to be recognized as an image of the king. Uh, In fact, I think people would have been surprised were they to encounter a portrait of the king without all of these elements. Interestingly, It's these elements that the portrait also shares with religious images. Oftentimes, religious images will be displayed and treated much in the same way. So what it comes down to is this seemingly entirely secular image is actually presented and treated as though it were a religious image or for instance, a monstrance holding the Eucharist or some element of Catholic religious practice. So the royal portrait here really is at the center of a number of visual practices that it shares with religious images. And so this is the the final case that seems to me so sort of illustrative of the weird gray area between secular portraiture and religious imagery, where you have these images that that very comfortably can be categorized as both.
1: It's so, a uh, very nice place to end the book, or uh, we've gone on this journey and we've come back here, um, and probably a good place for us to wrap up today. I've taken tons of your time already, um, so I've just got my one final question: What are you working on now?
2: Ah, um, I have a couple projects in the works. Um, you know, I love uh, I love Catholic religious imagery. My current project is in the history of emotions. I look at how spiritual images are meant to provoke or generate different kinds of emotional responses, but in particular I'm interested in one that you might not think of too much when thinking of religious imagery, which is disgust. Um disgust or revulsion. Um in particular I'm looking at martyrdom imagery, scenes of um that are often quite difficult to look at of um, saints and holy figures who are being uh, well treated in rather despicable ways. Uh, but my question is, how are you supposed to venerate an image that is so difficult to look at? Um, one of the interesting responses I always get is, well, people in the early modern period wouldn't have been disgusted by these kinds of things. Um, but we have a lot of evidence that people did feel discussed. Um, I'm the son of two bi- uh, bi- uh, biologists and uh, evolutionary biologists, and um, the... This has been a very interesting uh, project to discuss with them because we approach it in very different ways where they are interested in the evolutionary justifications for the emotion of disgust, and I'm interested in the cultural connotations that that emotion might have. Um, So uh, uh, it's a new project. Uh, We'll see where it goes. The history of emotions is very difficult to study because there are... Limited sources that you have, and those sources are very mediated. How can you really access what people mean when they say that they are disgusted? Um, sometimes they say things like "my stomach was turning" or "I had to hold my nose." Um, right, so those are sort of interesting indications of the emotion of disgust. But um, yeah, it's a it's a it's a new project. We'll see we'll see what comes of it, if anything
1: sure well i'm cap- capturing that moment of like a physical homeostatic response is interesting in itself
2: right like yeah. it's- right, right. <laughs>
1: you've got this, this event that happened, and then you're going to discuss it. that's interesting. Right,
2: right, exactly.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you've got your work cut out for you. Very cool. We'll we'll talk after that book as well. Um, All right, listeners. um, Thank you for joining me. Adam, thank you for taking time to talk to me today. It's been absolutely delightful.
2: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it.